0: If you want to work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.
1: For those who can track COVID-19, the road to recovery is not always a straightforward process. What is life like for the victims known as long haulers? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukie, a senior editor at The Economist, and coming up on today's show why innovation may not be as simple as a eureka moment. What is
2: never taken into account in the regulatory process is the degree to which you are killing people by not moving fast enough as a regulator of invention.
1: And the solution to 2020's other plague, swarms of locusts. The standard
3: management strategy for locusts is insecticide spraying. People tried things like flamethrowers in the past, but the results have been, I guess, mixed.
1: But first, for many people who get COVID-19, the disease is mild. Between a third and half of people won't experience any symptoms at all. And for those who do become sick, the illness usually clears up after a few weeks of bed rest. For a minority of others, however, COVID-19 is a lot more serious. It can mean hospitalization, and for some, death. Even for those who do survive the illness, the recovery is anything but smooth. A large number of infected people have reported lasting symptoms that don't go away on their own. These sufferers are referred to as long haulers. Why is it that some patients take so much longer to get back to normality
4: than others? The short answer is we don't really know. Slavia Chenkova
1: is our healthcare correspondent.
4: There are various hypotheses about why this may be happening. One is that perhaps the immune system doesn't shut down after it's been fighting the infection. That's uh, also something that we've seen with other diseases. People take a long time to recover in some cases. Are they people who've experienced particularly bad cases of COVID-19? So the worst cases are people who are hospitalized, people who need intensive care in some cases. But we also see that Some people who are never sick enough to be hospitalized, who recovered at home, end up fighting off symptoms for weeks and a small minority even for months.
1: Now, of course, there's two types of patients, as you've just pointed out. There's those who've been in hospital and those who didn't go to hospital, but were just part of the community. Do we have any sense of how many long haulers there are from both categories?
4: We know that probably about half Of people who've been in hospital take uh, six or eight weeks or sometimes even longer to recover. And for people who weren't hospitalized, who just stayed at home and rested, had a milder infection, the percentage seems to be around 10%. So that's the percent of people who seem to still have symptoms more than three weeks after they became unwell. And what are some of those
1: symptoms of long-haul sufferers?
4: Some of the symptoms are the original symptoms they had, fatigue, headaches, difficulty breathing, in some cases, body aches, fever. For some of them, the symptoms tend to come and go. So they'll have a couple of weeks where they'll feel fine, and then the symptoms are going to return for a couple of weeks. So that is definitely emerging as a pattern.
1: Now, is it the case that these patients really haven't gotten over the virus at all, that the virus is just simply still lingering in the body?
4: Nobody knows, really. They are testing negative for the virus, so it doesn't seem that the virus is still active, but the reasons why they still feel unwell, why they still have the original symptoms, remain a mystery.
1: Now, is this long recovery time unusual? Certainly there are lots of other illnesses which take a long time to get over.
4: That's true. We definitely see a minority of patients, even with uh, the seasonal influenza or other viral diseases, who may take weeks or even months to get back to normal, especially if they've been uh, very sick, if they've been in hospital. So this is definitely not surprising that we are seeing this for COVID-19, but many clinicians think that The share of patients with COVID-19 which have a prolonged recovery is higher than what they've seen with other viral illnesses.
1: What are the researchers doing to understand the
4: prevalence of long-haul sufferers? There are a number of studies that are being set up in many countries that are following tens of thousands of patients. And some of them are planning to actually follow up with them for 25 years just to see whether changes in their hearts or lungs end up leading to some sort of long-term impairment or health problems.
1: I spoke to Michael Marks, an epidemiologist at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, about this. He's a member of the steering committee of FOSP COVID for Post-Hospitalization COVID, a large British study of patients suffering from long-lasting symptoms of the illness.
0: We see two groups of patients who've had COVID-19 in the clinic that I help run. The first group is all the patients who've been admitted to hospital at our trust. That's everything from people who are very mildly unwell and only in hospital for a day, all the way through to those people who are recovering from being in intensive care. And then the second group of patients that we see are people who were never admitted but have been referred from the community breathlessness is really common maybe 50 to 60 percent of patients still feel breathless when we see them six to eight weeks after their illness but in some of those people they'll be breathless because they've gone on to develop permanent lung scarring such as a condition like pulmonary fibrosis some people will be breathless because their heart function has been impaired some people will be breathless because they've become deconditioned from a sort of muscle and physiology perspective So one of the key things in the clinic is to really evaluate the patient and understand what is the driver of each of their symptoms.
1: And so have you noticed any commonalities among those people who are long haulers? Are people who are obese, are they more likely to be long haulers? Are people who had underlying health conditions before COVID, are they more likely to be long haulers? Or is it really across the board, young, old, healthy, unwell?
0: amongst the hospitalised patients it is clear that the severity of your initial illness is related to your recovery so patients who went to intensive care have more ongoing symptoms when they're seen at follow-up and are at higher risk of complications like lung scarring we think probably than patients who only required oxygen or patients who were admitted and didn't require oxygen So that's a gradient that's related to their severity of their initial illness. And we know that severity of initial illness is related to a number of factors, including age, probably gender, ethnicity, potentially some underlying conditions. And so in order to understand that group in more detail, we've set up the FOSP COVID study. So this is a large UK government funded study being led by my colleague, Professor Chris Breitling in Leicester. And that will enroll about 10,000 patients who have been admitted to hospital and it will follow them for at least a year in the first instance and potentially for longer and that will help us identify amongst the patients who've been in hospital what are the predictors of the people who will still be symptomatic at six months or 12 months or two years can we predict who is going to develop lung fibrosis is that related to whether or not you had underlying lung disease to begin with is it related to how severe your illness is Is it related to which drugs you were given to treat your COVID-19?
1: Sylvia, that's how some scientists plan to study the long haulers. But what about treatments?
4: How are countries helping patients now? So Britain and some other countries are starting to set up uh, specialised rehabilitation programmes. And that's because usually rehabilitation programmes in healthcare would address a single problem, such as uh, people who have lung disease and have to learn how to make the best use of uh, whatever reduced lung function they have, or people who have chronic heart disease. In this case, the challenge is that people who recover from COVID-19 often have several of these problems all at once. So people who need care to recover from these symptoms can have rehabilitation which in some cases could be something as simple as a breathing exercise that may improve greatly um, their daily quality of life. Sylvia Chenkova, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And our thanks to Michael Marks at the
1: London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. For more on the ways that COVID-19 affects the human body, you can listen to a previous episode of Babbage called COVID-19's Path of Destruction from June 10th. It's one of our most popular podcasts of the year, where Slavea and I explored all the ways that the virus harms the body. You can access it via your podcasting app or googling Economist Babbage, COVID-19's path of destruction. And to get more thoughtful journalism like this, you really need to subscribe to The Economist to be a part of our community of readers, thinkers, and leaders. Go to economist.com slash podcast offer. You can find the link in the show notes. If you want to
0: work smarter, you need a system with smart built in. Workday has AI embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow and deliver unprecedented adaptability. Workday, the finance and HR system for a changing world.
1: Next up, for scientists, engineers and entrepreneurs, being innovative is the ultimate goal. The ability to improve people's lives is the foundation of progress which drives humanity forward, whether it is a new vaccine, an improvement in battery storage, or any number of advancements in technology. But it's one thing to set out to be innovative, and another to actually achieve it. So how does the process happen?
2: When you come down to it, we're not really sure why it happens to us and not to rabbits or rocks, why it happens when and where it does, uh, and why it slows down in some industries and speeds up in others.
1: Matt Ridley is a biologist, a member of Britain's House of Lords, and a journalist, including at The Economist in the 80s and early 90s. He is the author of numerous books on science and technology, most recently, How Innovation Works and Why It Flourishes in Freedom.
2: My general argument is that it's a bottom-up emergent phenomenon, uh, that it comes about somewhat inevitably and inexorably and under certain conditions, choosing the people who do it to do it for it, rather than, as it were, uh, being uh, the result of a grand plan by a genius. So one of the things I'm trying to do is rescue the, the ordinary innovator from the, uh, the idea that he's a special genius who has great uh, insights and uh, is a godlike figure. Um, I think it's a much more democratic process. It's also a much more collaborative process, a more gradual process, a more trial and error process. Innovation is more important than the original invention itself. That is to say, turning an invention into something that's affordable, reliable, and available. These are some of the themes that I discuss in my book.
1: Now you bring up trial and error. And of course, in your book, you examine Edison testing 6000 natural fibers to determine the filament for the light bulb. He did a form of trial and error, but artificial intelligence allows a new form of high throughput trial and error. Do you expect a sort of tidal wave of innovation to come from things like AI?
2: I think that's a very interesting point that AI is now capable of doing the sort of mass testing uh, of an idea that before was a very laborious process and to do it in a a systematic way that gives us a way of, of generating results. And you are seeing AI in drug discovery or something like that able to do trial and error in a way that human beings simply uh, couldn't do. So to some extent, yes, I think we're automating the trial and error process. And to the extent that we understand how to use AI innovation, it will be to understand the importance of trial and error. But also, I'm a little concerned that AI is not very good at serendipity yet. Uh, One of the things that emerges is that quite often... Solutions come from unexpected directions. Kevlar, Teflon, the post-it note were all developed by people looking for something completely different. And if you look at a site like Innocentive, where people post problems for people to try and solve, it's often people from outside the field who solve the problem. And I'm not sure that our AI system has got that on board yet. I'm actually quite worried about a innovation famine that in the West we're we're too good at suppressing innovation on behalf of vested interests at the moment. And I'd love it if there was going to be, if AI was going to unleash a tidal wave of innovation. I hope it does, but I have a feeling we're not quite there yet.
1: What do you look to that makes you concerned when you say that vested interests suppress innovation?
2: Well, if you look at something like nuclear power, it's been unable to do any innovating for the last 40 or 50 years basically, because the regulatory approval for a new design is so onerous and laborious to achieve that nobody does enough trials, let alone errors. Uh, And if you look at something like genetic modification of plants, this is a technology that is extraordinarily promising, but an entire continent in the shape of Europe has decided to turn its back on it. So there are some pretty striking examples today of that. And if you add in the effect of intellectual property, which which is often very anti-innovation these days, and the effect of regulation lobbied for by big consumer interests. So the example I give in the book is James Dyson inventing the vacuum cleaner and running up against the problem that his rivals in Europe lobbied the European Commission to bring in rules that favoured incumbent interests then I think we are in a period, plus, of course, the the, the general precautionary approach of the the lobby groups, of particularly environmental pressure groups. Um, We are in a period when actually, particularly in Europe, but also in North America to some extent, less so in China, until recently at least, it has become harder and harder to be an innovator.
1: Okay. So if we don't really know how innovation works, but we know some of the features that encourage innovation and the things that discourage it, what can wise people and policymakers do?
2: Well, I think one of the important things is to clear the undergrowth out the way of the innovator, to give him the freedom to experiment, the freedom to change direction, the freedom to be wrong uh, and start again, the freedom to make mistakes, if you like. Give him quick decisions from authority. One of my particular beefs is the fact that if you invent a new medical device, it can take three or four years to get regulatory approval. If you invent a video game, no problem. You go ahead and do it straight away. So on the whole, a lot of the energy gets diverted from medical devices into video games.
1: If I die in a video game, I just cook up a game again. If I die from a medical device, can't do it.
2: That's exactly right. And that's the the reason why we have much stricter regulation for a medical device. But as we've seen during the COVID crisis, we can approve new medical devices in a matter of weeks and still make sure they're safe. So I think that is more of an excuse than a real reason. What is never taken into account in the regulatory process is the degree to which you are killing people by not moving fast enough as a, a regulator of invention, by not allowing new and safer devices to come onto the market. This is the concept of harm reduction, which is a really important piece of innovation.
1: During the pandemic, people are looking to innovation to solve the problem, whether as a drug treatment or for a vaccine or for new ventilators, for example. What do you think we should learn and know, maybe the lessons, if you will, about innovation and our preparedness? Did our innovation infrastructure fail and what can we do to make sure it doesn't fail?
2: I think our innovation infrastructure has been found wanting by this crisis. If you take vaccines, for example, it takes several years to develop a new vaccine. That's roughly how long it took two wonderful women to produce the whooping cough vaccine in the late 1930s. That we have made so little progress on the speed and efficiency with which we develop vaccines is really rather shocking. Um, And that is a problem that we have become aware of. The Coalition of Epidemic Preparedness Innovation, uh, set up by Wellcome Trust and Gates Foundation and others, um, is there to address exactly this problem and have platforms of vaccine development ready to go when a pandemic comes along. But they'd only just started work when this pandemic came along. I reckon if they'd started work 10 years earlier, we'd be in a much better position. And I hope when we come out of this that we, are, we do take seriously the need to make sure that innovation happens in drugs, medical devices and vaccines, as well as in software, where an awful lot of it has been happening.
1: Matt Ridley, thank you very much. Thank you, Ken. And finally... In some parts of the world, COVID-19 is not the only plague wreaking havoc. In areas of Asia and East Africa, swarms of locusts have stripped fields threatening to cause a food crisis. Now scientists hope that a new discovery about the insects might provide a solution.
3: The swarms in 2020 in in some places are the worst they've seen for a very long time.
1: Tim Cross is our technology editor.
3: The UN, which monitors these things, says uh, the size of the swarms is the biggest in Kenya that it's been for 70 years. They recorded one swarm that was about 25 miles long and 37 miles wide. And again, in bits of India and Pakistan, it's the worst it's been for about a quarter of a century, we think.
1: So what causes the locust to swarm in the first place?
3: Locusts, most of the time, are sort of solitary insects that don't really cause any damage. But if you get the right circumstances together, and we're not entirely clear what those are yet, but heavy rain seems to be a sort of big part of it, because that causes a boom in the plants on which they feed. They can sort of switch behaviours and become what scientists call gregarious. And then they change colour and their behaviour changes. So instead of being solitary, they sort of meet up with other locusts, start displaying these swarming behaviours, and then you get these sort of you know, ravenous clouds of the things that can fly you know, dozens of kilometres in a day and strip fields bare.
1: And now scientists think they have uncovered new information about locusts that might help them prevent this.
3: Yes. So they think they might have found a bit of the biochemical machinery that kind of drives this transformation. So what they found is a pheromone, which is a a signaling molecule, um, something with a sort of smell to it that seems to change the insect's behavior and to attract them to each other.
1: And how did they discover this? And how would that prevent this?
3: So in the paper, a scientist called Xiao Jiao Guo, who works at the Institute of Zoology in Beijing, compared the chemicals present in solitary and gregarious locusts, and they looked at the migratory locust, which is the most common species. They found six that were more common, were more commonly produced by gregarious locusts than solitary ones, which is their initial batch of candidates, and then With further testing, they found out that just one of those, a chemical called 4-vinyl anisole, or 4-VA, seemed to be responsible for making them swarm. So they tested this chemical on uh, male locusts and female ones, on mature ones and immature ones, and on ones that were solitary and ones that were already gregarious. And in all of those cases, it made the locusts much keener to bunch up with other locusts. And from that, they drew the conclusion that this was the pheromone that causes the attraction.
1: Okay, so now that we know how diffident introverted locusts become extroverted gregarious ones, how can scientists turn them back to their natural state in which they're all just mere individuals again, not part of a tribe?
3: Well, the hope is that 4VA will let them do that, because at the moment, you know, the sort of standard management strategy for locusts is insecticide spraying. People have tried things like, like flamethrowers in the past, but the results have been, I guess, mixed. The hope is that now that we've identified this pheromone it might give us new ways to attack the problem so the simplest idea i guess is if you can make this pheromone synthetically you can use it to bait traps you know it's very very attractive to locusts so you build a trap put some of this stuff at the bottom watch them all fly in a more sophisticated option might be if you can come up with a chemical that binds to the receptor on the locust antenna that's designed to sense this stuff and kind of blocks it you might then effectively make the insect unable to smell it. So, you know, although some of the locusts are emitting it, if you spray this chemical, the others might not be able to detect that and so wouldn't, wouldn't swarm. And then there are even more sophisticated ideas. You could maybe use genetic engineering because the scientists were able to work out the gene sequence that codes to this receptor. If you could create a locust where that gene sequence was knocked out or disabled and somehow, you know, spread it, widely enough that it became common in the wild, then again you would effectively kind of short circuit this mechanism and the locusts would live solitary lives forever.
1: Does playing around with locusts also mean we're playing God with the ecosystem?
3: on one level it does because you know the point of an ecosystem is everything is connected right so locusts are you know they eat crops their food in turn for other animals and so on but i think what's attractive about this kind of approach is it's pretty targeted you know if locusts are the only species that are using this this chemical that interfering with this chemical only interferes with the locusts whereas if you're spraying insecticides you know they tend to be broader acting. If you're resorting to flamethrowers, you're going to end up burning your crops. So I I think the hope is that this is sort of the most targeted measure yet that we might be able to use.
1: Tim Cross, thank you very much. Let us hope that scientists can solve the swarm. Thanks, Ken. And that's all for this episode of Babbage. While you're with us, please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. I'm Kenneth Couquier, and in London, this is The Economist.
0: If you want to work smarter you need a system with smart built-in workday has ai embedded into the core of the system to seamlessly support your workflow
4: and deliver unprecedented adaptability workday the finance and hr system for a changing world